Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. And I'm joined today by Ian Smith, company's editor. How are you doing, Ian? Not too bad, John. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Been to the doc this morning. It's all okay. I had a bad shoulder, as uh, we've discussed before, haven't we, Algie? Yes, because yeah. you, you're a man afflicted by many physical ailments. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. <laughs> um, but... Yes, you know, my, my bad back has been, um, yeah, it's becoming legendary in the office. Are you right sitting there? I, do you want a standing desk? A standing desk would help. In the podcast but, for but, half of that. <laughs> <laughs> I may just make it, though. Anyway, as you heard, we're joined by Algie Hall as well, who's written this week's Excellence cover feature. Got lots to talk about this week, apart from the cover feature, which is about income, always a popular subject in this uh, low-rate world. We are going to talk consumer goods, because we've had some interesting stories this week. You've bought some things with you, haven't I've you, I've got Jim? props, yeah, man. I've got props. What have we got? We've got uh, egg-free mayo by a company called, I can't pronounce it, and yeast, nature's energy yeast extract from a company called Meridian. Um, Which is a horrible colour. It's kind of it's a deep brown. It's nice. Anyway, we're gonna, there's a reason I've brought these. We're going to discuss that in a minute. It's to do with Unilever and what's been going on today. Uh, Marmite gate. Marmite gate. It's all over mm. the front pages. Um, I'm not sure really what the business angle. There is a business angle, but... Uh, well, it brings in two companies, well, at least two companies, many more, actually. And it has, it has hit the shares a little bit as well. Yeah, but, but I suppose with Unilever, it's such a big group uh, that it doesn't have as much of an impact as... Uh, I know you were writing in the past when Premier Foods, uh, a few years ago, had a similar uh, problem regarding Hovis. Hovisgate. Hovisgate was when the, yeah. pattern, the price of wheat went up. And uh, actually, funny you mentioned Premier Foods because they are the other company that we've written about in the news section this week. Ties in together because if only people after Brexit start eating uh, gravy and other traditional British grown foods. No, 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 no. Because, uh, well, I guess it, it might be like passport to Pimlico when we cease to become part of the EU. The rain will come, the cold will come, and we can start eating gravy again. Exactly. And Premier Foods profits might start to rise. Exactly right. That's it. It all ties together. <laughs> um, but of course, tying this all together is is the plight of sterling, which is, as some people have uh, seemed to be taking great pleasure in mining, because it's is it, is it a 126 year low or something bizarre like that. I... You're on a trade way to basis on a trade weighted basis yeah which is pretty crazy yeah yeah it's been coming it's been happening for a long time you've only got to look at our stats page to see that the plight of sterling has been uh, a long-running uh, saga but these sharp dips that we've seen have impacted companies sports direct yeah. being the principal one yeah we're gonna talk, talk about that in a minute we're gonna talk about lloyd's uh and the uh lack of a, a retail share offer to the the last bit of uh Government share sale there, which no one seems to care about except us. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> us and other people within the uh, share buying community. And the share broking community. Share -broking you, you're community. obviously a bit cross about this. Yeah. I mean, let's crack on with the news section. Where do we start? Well, I think really we should start with the, the weak pound and how pound. it's impacting on the companies because it really does tie a lot of the news section to get, uh, and some of the tip updates and even some of the results uh, together this week. Yeah, as you say, the big story being uh, Unilever uh, uh, goods no longer, or well, some of them no longer being available through Tesco's website, which was first uh, spotted. But you can still buy them in the shops. We still buy them in the shops, yeah. So it's not like yeah they've taken them off the shelves. Right, uh, but get... it's an argument over pricing. Yes. Um, so uh, Unilever sources uh, a lot of its goods or raw materials in, in dollars mm -hmm. uh, and then sells in pounds. So mm -hmm. the kind of ranges that are affected, Dove shampoo, Marmite spread and Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which is a John Human morning routine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, let's talk Marmite because this has annoyed me. Yeah, we knew we just knew Brexit was a Marmite issue and now 
<laughs> oh, very good. See, you're learning from Simon Thompson. We get it. Glad we got him on last week. Um, Marmite. I mean, let's talk Marmite. For me, my household is a very important product. Uh, it's it's our primary source of vitamin B12. It's a very very important vitamin uh, for, for for staying well. A lot of people get that from meat. We don't eat meat in our household. Our B12 comes from Marmite. Our only local supermarket is Big Tesco, so now we can't buy it. What am I going to do? Buy Vegemite or locally sourced. I don't think Vegemite has the B12. It's, it's, it's really an interesting thing, though, as far as Unilever go, goes. I mean, because there are alternatives to all these products. The brand, the brand strength is what Unilever's trying to protect mm. with um, the blanket price rides, or, or, or one would presume, because they don't want to be hiking prices obscenely for some goods and keeping them low for, for others. They want to um, kind of take the hit across all the brands, probably, is what, what their negotiating or, stance is. Or rather, get someone else to take the hit, in this case, the retailers. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, you know, but, Ster- Sterling's changed, and they make a lot, of, a lot of their um, manufacturing costs. Some of them won't be affected, but others will. Okay, well, let's, well, let's specifically so, talk... Yeah, but I, don't, I don't know if the pricing's fair, that 10% hike. Well, uh, but, uh, but, um, and that figure hasn't actually been confirmed, but that's what people think is in that's the range what people of... That's talking about. Yeah, and Sainsbury's is having similar discussions with Unilever. It has been reported too. But yeah, there is a question. Certain products are actually sourced outside of the uh, the UK, but Marmite, I know you're going to go into that, is not, but then the packaging still may well be, so there are other costs that go into the product. But yeah, what's your take on Marmite? Oh, what's Marmite made out of? Absolutely ridiculous. It's made out of a waste product from brewing, and pretty much all beer drunk in the UK is brewed in the UK. I mean, that's the way brewing works. So the waste product, uh, some kind of yeast slop that, that comes out of the, uh, the, the vats, then goes to, to Unilever, who turn it into Marmite. Uh, in Burton-on-Trent, as far as I understand it. I, I mean, I understand Audi's point that um, Unilever, as a massive multinational company, um, will, you know, in certain territories, do kind of across-the-board price rises. I think perhaps they haven't really thought about that they, this could be this big, that there could be this big Ferrari coming out of Marmite is obviously one of those issues that has actually, it's probably the time when the fall in the sterling actually will cut through to people is if they can't get on their online shop certain products and they're starting to question why that is. You know, I spent a whole year, we spent pretty much the best part of 2016 without any wa- Carl's water biscuits in our house. And, and I couldn't, we thought, what's going on here? And apparently there'd been a flood at the factory and they couldn't make them. They couldn't make them. We lived for a year without Cars Water Biscuits. It was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Not going in your top 10 anecdotes. <laughs> Mate, honestly, this caused serious problems in the human household. Yeah, cars Water Biscuits are a staple. But no, no, I mean, brandy products are important. People kind of, they hold them People, dear to their yeah. hearts. They love them. They go back to them time and time again. And I guess that's the strength of companies like Unilever. Well, yeah. And it all comes back to pricing power. So, I mean, this is, you know, what what lies at the heart. I mean, a company like Tesco's is trying to um, squeeze the most that it can out of um, the products it buys and, you know, the margin that it gets from selling them on. Well, Tesco's margins Whereas, are tiny. They're yeah. tiny. and um, But Unilever is the producer and the brand owner is trying to always leverage that brand power. And its, bra- its margins of- are massive. Yeah. No, I mean, it's ex- exactly. You know where you'd want to be sitting. I mean, Dave Lewis was sitting in... Um, 
at Unilever till not very long ago, which so makes this well, particularly he, interesting. Well, I think it does make it particularly interesting. He knows, he knows how they work. On, so, yeah. he's, so, you know, he's called their bluff. But he might be, and the or he's, side, or he's being strong-headed. He's being, you know, he thinks that he can get more. I mean, you actually wrote about Unilever in 2011. Which you reminded me of, which <laughs> I, you showed me the piece I wrote, which I have absolutely no memory of writing. Well, in your, I usually do. In your this infinite is... wisdom, you wrote about <laughs> how... <laughs> oh, he's got the evidence here. <laughs> so in your infinite wisdom, you wrote about how they were... De- delisted in France um, back at that point and it was close uh, to the time of uh, Premier Foods experience Um, but yeah that was related to kind of higher commodity prices Mm. and trying to pass them through so obviously it does go through these cycles it does have large pricing power and supermarkets are facing competitive pressures so yeah Sainsbury's is still at the table negotiating it sounds like so yeah it might be that Tesco can't afford to be the odd one out that doesn't go with the other retailers if they decide to accept some of this price rise well, what, what point do they, does it affect them? Well, it's not affecting them that very much in share price at the moment. But over the medium term, will it affect Tesco if they, you know, are they yeah. too protective of that like-for-like sales growth? I'm, I'm, I'm cross with you, Lever, anyway, because uh, a number of years back, they reformulated uh, the ingredients of Magnums, which was a, oh, which yeah, was a treat. I, loved it. I used to love a Magnum. It was a treat I always used to, you know, uh, enjoy at the weekend. And they, they reformulated the ingredients. They're not vegetarian. Who would have thought that you could make an ice cream non-vegetarian? Unilever have managed it. And they did it in such a way that it was kind of not really very clear that they'd done it. And I just think, I just don't think they care very much about their own customers. They've got brand strength, like you say. But, I, you know, I felt really betrayed as a long-standing right. supporter of the Magnum. <laughs> the thing I... <laughs> What, the power of the staple good but what I think is quite interesting is to see whether Unilever and the other consumer goods companies will have the same kind of pricing power when grocery retail becomes more and more online will you know is something a staple because you always go into the supermarket you always pick up the same thing from the same kind of place will things change online will other kind of brands be able to break through will more locally sourced products um, come to the fore I think it's be quite interesting I mean also there's the question with the discounters I mean do we do supermarkets really want to be stocking all these brands anymore because I mean that's part of the success of the discounters they've got they source far fewer things and they rely far more heavily on own brands. Well, it's interesting yeah. you say that because, you know, Marks and Spencers, um, under Mark Bolland, one of the first things he did with the food business was say, right, we're going to introduce a lot of these staple brands um, because, you know, we want people to be able to come in here and buy everything they need. And I, I kind of, that experiment was, I mean, they, they still f- stock a few, but that, it was a yeah, relatively a, short-lived mm. experiment, you know. And, and Marks and Spencers, of all the food retailers, has done, has done especially well and it doesn't stock all these brands. No, absolutely. People go there... Because it's Marks and Spencers that they're, that they're buying. And we've the, already the seen that. are Marks and Spencers products. Sorry, and we've already seen that with, with Tesco. They are doing some simplification. We're seeing it for a few different types of retailers as well doing that too. Yeah, no, no, I can, I can believe it. I mean, you know, I mean, let's turn to Premier Foods because they also once had a run-in with Tesco, as you mentioned earlier, uh, regarding pricing. Um, yeah, so there was some, I think it was forest fires contributed to the rising wheat price back in 2011. Is that what it was? Yeah, well, apparently, according to I the pro- IC. I probably wrote about this as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just reminding you of things you wrote uh, five years ago. But yeah, and they tried to pass that on um, to, and were quite... Um, tough with the pricing of Hovis um, Tesco delisted them um, and it actually led to them writing down the value of their bread division and the resulting share price fall pushed them out of the FTSE 350 so when you get it wrong you can get it wrong if you haven't got the power to um, yeah keep- and, I, 
I think the point you made earlier, though, Ian, was that that uh, Premier Foods is very much a UK-focused business. Unilever is a global business, so Unilever can afford mm. a little bit of a battle like this in a way that Premier Foods couldn't. Yeah, they. I think the they had a analyst call this morning where I think it was the finance director started talking pointedly about another geographical area of operation you know it's this point that we don't really this is might be the biggest story on twitter but it's not the biggest story in terms of unilever's growth and that's very much what they'll be saying back to 10 percent of sales isn't it something like that that's still significant. It's still significant. Still significant. Yeah. yeah. Is that, um, the, is I mean, that the first I mean, growing part of their sales? Yeah. Unilever versus Tesco's. Tesco's look like looks like um, the proverbial D- David up against the Goliath. It's Unilever. You do know who won that battle? Well, yeah. Oh, maybe cool lesson there for me. <laughs> Premier Foods also had a profit warning this week. They, as we kind of alluded to earlier, didn't blame Sterling. They blamed weather, which it, I've often said is something that just is a red flag when when I'm concerned. Well, yeah, and hot... It's whether you agree that hot weather stops people eating gravy and other hot dinners. Yeah, because I didn't eat one bit of hot food all summer. <laughs> and surely that surely that's the case every summer. Well, you you would have thought that that, you know, companies that sell gravy understand that there is a bit of a summer lull. And and maybe to perhaps it does do seem, it, something it does to, to, to compensate for that. Maybe sell some salad dressing or something. <laughs> yeah, I think you can forgive Premier Foods shareholders for scratching their heads at the moment. There was all of that M and A activity where they rejected the um, a takeover from US. Um, group McCormick, and then they've put much stock in this. Um, not literally. Was that a pun? Um, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <That's not laughs> they put much stock in this strategic agreement with Nissin Foods, which is a Japanese noodle maker. Um, so, yeah, they've obviously got ideas for how they want to grow the business, but yeah, it doesn't fill you with confidence when uh, they say that too much sun stops people eating gravy. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, stock was also something they they uh, complained about. Stock sales had not been uh, what they expected. So the they people not making their own gravy. Well, yes, indeed. But so um, you know, they sell Oxo. Are they Oxo? Oxo, yes. Yeah, is it Oxo? Um, see, this is the thing too. I stopped buying Oxo cubes years ago because they cost loads. One pound seventy six, a hundred grams, according to Sainsbury's. You, you are the bellwether of English consumption. I'm a I'm a conservative <laughs> shopper. We use Sainsbury's basics, vegetable stock cubes. They cost thirty p, a hundred grams. So, you know, here, here again is, is an interesting thing. Regarding, do I care whether it's OXO or Sainsbury's Basics or whatever? No, I do not. It's bloody stock, for God's sake. Um, but and, you and, make, and it, you make, and you have spoken about this on the podcast before, yeah, you make a principle of buying locally, sourcing local I try, beer, I don't food. always. Not always, but you probably put more thought into this than the average shopper. Yeah, but stock is stock. Is stock. I mean, it's just... It's just slightly flavoured liquid. Per- personally, I love Noor. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the vegetable? What's that? What, uh, What's Noor? Well, maybe I'm saying it wrong. Yeah, no. Knorr. Knorr. Uh, and who's that? And Bouillon. Oh, yeah, I got I use Bouillon. There you go. Brands, brands um, pull me in on that front. Yeah, I, think, I, I would say the flavours should come from elsewhere rather than the stock, personally. But, you know, that's, that's just my cooking technique. Here we go. <laughs> I think we're a subject here. <laughs> Anyway, my point is, branded goods, I, I just, you know, especially when times become tight. This is something I used to write about a lot when I was covering both retailers and uh, consumer goods. Not that it's, you remember any of it. I do remember this bit. Uh, you know, when times were tight, people are more inclined to go to trade down to the supermarket-owned brands. Or now, 
because they are much more established, trade down to the discounters. And actually, in terms of product quality, that doesn't always mean you are trading down. Um, and actually, I think that makes it very hard for the branded suppliers. They've really got to work a lot harder. Well, how do you explain then the really defensive nature of these stocks over time? I know they're very they, they haven't always been. They haven't always been. I mean, you know, Unilever had some wobbles um, around the uh, the time of the credit crunch. And, you know, I think there were questions over whether people would actually trade significantly away from it. Um, and actually, Unilever's strength comes from the fact that it's global, that, that it has a lot of growth opportunities in emerging markets. Um, well, that's the point. Yeah, surely that's the point. Because if you look at your um, tip that you wrote on uh, Unilever back in 2011, it's now up, Shepard's up 78% from that point, and um, plus dividends, obviously. Oh, that wasn't bad, was it? That wasn't bad advice at all. Um, so that wasn't a bad recommendation at all. But I think at, those, at that point, you might have made some of these same questions about whether branded mm. goods are going to survive um, you know the global economy was still kind of getting back on its feet at that point so um, I think the fact that they are so well diversified in geographies as well as product helps them ride out these uh, dips we can get a bit too parochial can't we when we talk about food and, and well, you know, we're, we're talking about Marmite which is extremely parochial <laughs> yes, <that is. laughs> if you look at the US journalist news reaction <laughs> So anyway, that's enough. We've talked for about 20 minutes about Marmite. What is, what is going on with the world? It's gone mad. It's gone mad. I guess, I guess what we're really talking about is Sterling. And as you mentioned earlier in Sports Direct, yeah. you know, it's, it's possibly the most obvious recent example of, of how that's hurting retailers. Yeah, they took out a, a currency hedge um, because obviously they source goods in US dollars. Um, and the flash crash that we saw in the pound crystallised an element of that hedge, which resulted in a £15 million hit. Wow. The Sports Direct uh, finance director is also leaving the company. It was announced today. Um, yeah, that was a bit sudden. Yeah, that was random. a bit sudden. So there's lots of bad news around mm. the stock. But if GBP to USD stays at 1.2 for the rest of the year, then it's going to be an extra £20 million, I think it is, hit on uh, Sports Direct. So that's tough for them. DFS, um, I think we covered in results this week, they also are going to get a hit uh, that analysts are estimating around £12 million. But then also we've got a tip-up date on Amino Technologies because obviously it goes both ways and they sell streaming services um, into the US market and they are benefiting, so a profit upgrade. Um, so, yeah, it, it splits and we talked about it a bit last week, but it definitely has continued to be the story of the week. Indeed, and you know, as we discussed in the podcast last week, Simon Thompson had outlined uh, some companies that he thought would also benefit from uh, from weaker sterling, and he's done so again in this week's magazine. Yeah, yeah, Constellation Healthcare. Constellation Healthcare. Yeah. And Algy, you've also come up with some best of Brexit shares. That oh will yeah, this. my my stock screen, best of Brexit. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, it's it's my best of British screen, which um was hit by Brexit and sterling's weakness. Unsurprisingly, as it looks for companies generating um profits uh here and this this screen looks for companies generating for well, actually sales not profits um overseas and which are doing very well on another couple of me- metrics not a surprising crop of picks no you've got no there. they're um they're you know you when when you see them it's it's not like oh my goodness there's a revelation there but um i mean there's some very nice companies like hill and smith is doing fantastically at the moment um, and everything. And this is this is just another um, plus for Hill and Smith, and we've had that on a buy for a long time. Um, a company like Burberry looks very interesting because there are a couple of other things going in its favour as well. So I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're in there. There are some interesting companies which come up um, in that screen definitely, and others which are just um, you know most of it is just sterling. Yeah, well, as you said earlier, Algie, 
populist screen there this week. Yeah, we've got definitely. another one coming next week, have we? Yes, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to identify dream aim shares next week. Dream aim shares. I can only imagine what they could be. <laughs> um, okay, I mean, let's let's turn back to the news quickly. Uh, what the AstraZeneca news is interested in? Yeah, so that was an interesting bit of analysis that was done by um, our correspondent Megan Boxall, um, which was looking at how AstraZeneca is doing a spate of licensing deals. The criticism would be that they have these profit and revenue targets for next year and that they're making a load of short-term deals just to get some revenue through the door. Um, but that's probably being a bit unfair to the company. They have spent quite a lot on R&D um, and they now need to make sure they've got kind of money coming in, uh, cash flows coming in to protect the dividend. Um, and presumably once they've made these deals, they're, you know, they're not entirely insulated from, from any potential upside there so you know if, if, if something they've licensed comes good there must be some return for them to come yeah but they, they are weighted towards the beginning the one-off payments and then the milestone payments but yeah it's not all an initial upfront payment i mean the other argument for it is that the astrazeneca is streamlining into uh, just respiratory oncology cardiovascular so um i asked megan early and all of these uh, licensing deals, sorry, none of these licensing deals fall into those three camps apart from one, I think it was a blood cancer drug um, yeah, that they've yeah. licensed out. It tells what's sensible. I think it's sensible. Well, it's strategic. It, it's, uh, yeah. Although it, Megan, was, she was saying something quite interesting to us because he and I were both um, chatting to her about it and she was saying some of the areas that they've sold off she finds a bit puzzling because they're just so mainstream, like the antibiotics. She said, you know, there, there could there could be um, companies could have to actually invest in antibiotics and they've just sold their arm off to Pfizer and also an, um, anaesthetic. They've um, they're getting out of that. And she um, she was just saying, you know, she finds it a bit confusing that such a mainstream bits of the business um, are bits that they're getting out of. that They're going they're becoming so focused. So she's in, in some way, she's not surprised that people are a bit suspicious about do they just need the money up front. Exactly. Do they just need to get the cash in and support the dividend? So protecting the dividend again. Exactly. Yeah, so mm. it's that old question, is it a bit short-termism? But, but, she, but she's very much of the opinion, isn't she, that they have put a lot of money into um, their pipeline in these areas they're focusing on and there's lots of, there are lots of ongoing costs that they have to fund as well. So they, they have upped their game in the bits of the business they're talking about. So, you know, there are genuine reasons. Well, I think I think you have to focus as a, you know, a business these days. I mean, you know, con- the conglomerate model mm. dis- you know, went by the wayside a long time ago. Uh, and, you know, if you think about scientific research, you know, there's, there's probably maybe some, but not a lot of synergies between, you know, researching antibiotics and researching cancer. I mean, you know, it's essentially two lots of costs. Yes, there is, yeah, no, there isn't any synergy between them. There's a strategic log- logic there. But, uh, but, but I mean, you're always going to come up against these questions when a, com- a company, a big, the point of, of being a big company in a way is that you can follow things through to the end. If you're, in the, if you're a pharma company, you can follow your um, uh, research through to the end and get the blockbuster drug at the end of it. So I think any company, which is a big company getting out of these areas, especially if there are question marks over its ability to generate enough cash to pay the all-important dividend. Mm. It's more, There's going to be scepticism. It's more pertinent than a question, arguably, for GSK, mm. uh, which has just appointed um, a chief executive who came from a division which a lot of the shareholders want them to get rid of, right? So that in terms of the question of what bits of the business do you keep, that's quite a good example. But I, th- I think the worries over the dividend are pretty are more acute at GSK than they are at AstraZeneca. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Of course, soon to be a subject of our cash clinic. 
Yeah. Whenever I find the time. Actually, I think I may start this week. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. So, um, hopefully, not too long now. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and a fascinating, fascinating story there. I mean, we've, we've, we've obviously, I think we've really upped our game over the last couple of years in terms of our healthcare coverage. Both, both Harriet and 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 subsequently mm. Megan have, I think, have really got to grips with this sector. And I think, you know, the, the research. And analysis we've done over the past couple of years has, has really, you know, helped and should have helped investors understand exactly what's going on here because it is mind-bogglingly mm-hmm. complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and any kind of proprietary data you put together in the way that Megan has done here is just helping, you know, shareholders to look at it in a slightly different way, especially these big encumbered companies. Absolutely. Um, let's quickly talk Lloyd's. Uh, not that anyone cares. It uh, is what it is. So. There yeah, was it's, obviously it's one of our tips of the year still. Yeah. Can we not mention that? Well, well we, you we know, don't, we don't want to, want to bury our heads in the sand. The tip wasn't on the basis that there would be the Lloyd share sale. I think even when no, we, we, we put thought that... we thought that may help, though, I think, didn't we? we? We thought that may just add to the kind of idea that this was becoming a income-paying stock again. And obviously the persistent barrage of um, problems... And and the interest rate environment, it just kind of yeah. really make, make it hard for that story well, to I come mean, through. I suppose the thing with the retail offer was that it was going to come with a discount and a bonus share. So part of the reason we included it in the yeah the tip of the year was that that would have been a good time to buy the share, especially at the moment. Now you can make that argument, are all those headwinds so strong? And I know that's an argument we had in the office the other day. Well, the wider question, which I talk about a little bit in my taking stock, and we've talked about subsequently, and I had some really interesting reader comments on my piece, was why is the government deciding to move away from the retail shareholding? Is it because they think they're going to lose more money than they sell to institutions? Is it, as I've suggested, because they're not as committed to the Thatcherite project of trying to increase uh, like the popular capitalism? Um, it doesn't seem to be as much. Of but they, but they have talked about in more inclusive capitalism. Yeah, and, you know, you would have thought wider equity share ownership would have been part of that. Well, well they seem to be much more on the middle ground of the responsible capitalism um, model of, you know, trying to improve co- company governance across the board rather than saying, well, the way that we, you know, improve companies is to get, a, get a, you know, swathe more individual shareholders into them. It's funny you say that, actually, because uh, Chris Dillow has written a very interesting piece uh, this week on uh, on share ownership. It's from, from some academic research. It's very complicated, as, as most of what Chris writes is in kind of theory, but Chris has really done a good job of explaining it. But, but in essence, what he's what he's suggesting is that that actually this wide share ownership model is not the best ownership structure for a lot of companies. And you've made because, because actually the owners become very detached uh, and, and therefore don't put enough pressure on on management to actually run the business in in the way that they should. And actually, part of that, which you allude to in your column, in is that you know in the case of uh, many owners of UK shares particularly if they're in uh, ISAs or, um, or through uh, nominee accounts, they don't actually have a right to, to participate in the, uh, the ownership of the co- or the management of the company. And they very um, infrequently are the balance of power as well. We all know that the kind of uh, the, the banks, the lenders and the kind of major equity shareholders, the institutions are the ones that can influence companies, as we've seen over the past couple of years. So, yeah, I don't think it particularly works. I think that Thatcherite project was more about bringing people into pri- encouraging private property build whether that being actual property you know right to buy or being via share ownership trying to give people um, a stake in an economy that is privately privately run rather than an industrialized economy i mean let's so not I forget think, as yeah. well you know when, when thatcher came to power you know most of britain was dirt poor and you know, and it was I, much more a nationalized economy you know and that that was really still the legacy from the second world war so i think yeah there are historical reasons why that's the case i mean the big reason not to put the other reason that has nothing to do to it with ideology 
ideology now not to put people into the stock is because of the risks that you've both mentioned regarding uh, Lloyds. And as one of our commentators made the point with uh, the spectre of Brexit hanging over the bank as a domestically focused um, retail bank, um, is it a risk for a government which is pursuing a uh, particular policy on, you know, on the wishes of the, the populace? It could actually be affecting the bank negatively while also telling people to take on the shares of the bank uh, it's a very kind of it's kind of risky game to play yeah i mean my, my view would be you know when you have these big sort of public offers you know i don't think that there is a level of scrutiny over the performance of the business uh, from the general share buying public because they're not they're not the they're not mm-hmm. the ic reader they are a much broader uh, yeah. cross-section of society and i don't think they, they wouldn't be used to analyzing performance or risks or you know hence why the prospectuses for large share offers are massive and difficult to put together and expensive to put together because those risks have to be laid bare and you know i honestly believe in the case of the banks you know i don't think anyone actually knows what the risks are down the road i think they are in a very yeah. difficult spot i don't think there's anything specifically wrong with lloyds but i think the sector has some serious problems i mean the sector is, yeah, it's repugnant, really, at the moment, isn't it? I, I, I mean, That's a the, strong the, word. What, what, on both it, sides I mean, of know, the you, pond. Well, yeah, you, exactly. You look at, yeah, you know, what, what RBS is um, said to have done with, um, you know, putting businesses out, you know, putting companies out of business in order to get their hands on their assets and what's happened at Wells Fargo. And, you know, it's going, you know, countless other examples of such terrible, um, seemingly terrible practice. And it's... Um, if you're if you're a government selling shares, do you want to be selling shares in a company which is part of that sector? Yeah. Where yeah, you know, in hindsight, they should have returned it to the private sector so much more quickly and not worried as much about the profit made for the taxpayer, which has been the whole discussion. Because the problem that we've had is now RBS and Algy mentioned the the, the Buzzfeed Newsnight um, investigation that's come out on top of the things we already knew from the Tomlinson report in 2013 um, to show that there was questionable stuff going on at the bank. And then in terms of how it was dealt with by the bank after the financial crisis and up to this point, you have a situation where the taxpayer owns the majority of RBS through UK financial investments, which reports ultimately to the Treasury. At the same time, you have the Treasury Select Committee, which is um, scrutinising RBS on its conduct. And you just have this situation where the owner of the bank is also the holding the bank to account is is a mess and it's slightly Mm. terrifying and you can think with hindsight if only this bank was not still majority owned by the uh by the taxpayer. Yeah, it's only marginally less terrifying than what's going on at Deutsche Bank, which, uh, <laughs> 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 which I mean, it's existential. Yeah, it's existential. Investment bank, I've just been reading a really interesting book called The Death of Gentlemanly Capitalism by Philip Auger. Um, and it actually finishes, it only goes up to 2000, but it shows how investment, how UK banks and brokers um, and commercial banks really struggled to get into investment banking and then how the US banks kind of came in and, and took over a lot of those um, markets activities in the city and what really the book for me demonstrated was that investment banking requires total commitment from a banking group it requires a lot of capital it requires a lot of bonuses like the annual bonus round i don't think obviously there's a lot of political um, backlash from big banking bonuses but that annual bonus round at an investment bank is incredibly important to maintaining those traders that make the profits. So it's kind of an all or nothing thing with investment banking. And it's so I think it speaks to why it's so hard for these banks to come out of it in any kind of way while kind of getting any profits out of it. So Deutsche Bank has actually now lost a couple of senior uh, people, I think, this week. There are others, you know, stories coming out of the bank that are very bad. They've obviously got these huge derivative positions on their balance sheet. 
which okay, they're netted out, but they're still massive. And actually, this is why I said in my column last week that I think the bank in some ways to be worried about in the UK is Barclays. It still has a huge investment banking um, activity. um, And it's not fitting with where the regulatory trend that we're seeing within banking is, which is that regulators want banks to go back to being boring utility-like businesses that do more basic lending and don't do the kind of, you know, we've had, the, you know, the Volcker rule and don't do those kind of, you know, trading on their own book and all the things that have got them into trouble in the past. Yeah. So I'd say, yeah, have a look at Barclays as well. Don't just get uh, concerned about RBS at the moment. No, but in Barclays there seems to be some kind of political tug of war i say political internally political between between the retail and the investment banking side of things well which has seen you know some some upheaval at at the management level which i don't think was very welcome to shareholders i thought was quite interesting as you mentioned deutsche bank was that selling in terms of selling the uh, asset management business which one of the things uh, which is being considered the most profitable part of the bank at the moment yeah and if you think to barclays right barclays sold barclays global investors which included the iShares business in 2009 Mm. um in in kind of similar circumstances and you see that um, Barclays Global Investors has become part of BlackRock, which also bought up Merrill Lynch's fund management business, as I've discussed before. And that is now the biggest asset manager. And you think, if you look over the long view, banks, commercial banks have got into investment banking, which has really threatened a lot of their kind of shareholder, uh, um, their return for shareholders over that time period, and has also led to them to then dispense with businesses that have good long-term prospects mm. in terms of holding, being holders of capital and investors of capital. So, yeah, at, at this point, the investment banking venture doesn't look like a good one for a lot of the uh, major banking groups. Okay. as uh, Now, you pronounced his name much better than I think I would have managed. Credit Suisse, boss. To Johnny Tian. I mean, he's described his own sector as uninvestable. Yeah, that was very interesting. <laughs> Went in there said, um, okay, we can't do return on equity anymore because obviously of all the problems but you can't really do return on risk-adjusted equity because there's no universal principles for how you judge the risks. So basically, there's no way of judging uh, the returns to the bank. Terrifying. Banks are very cheap, though. You can pick up Deutsche Bank shares for 30p of the pound of, of, uh, of book value, which is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, until no, it gets diluted. You, you, have, you have to ask, yeah, when's the point where we actually get to that, you know, it can't get any worse? Mm. And something good happens like an interest rate rise and suddenly... Everyone starts to change their mind. Well, who knows when the, the you know bond yields have started to tick up again this week. It's been exactly, a, bit of a yeah. bit of a dumping of uh, of, of gilts uh, and other government bonds. So who knows? We, it could be around the corner. It might be a full storm. We never yeah. know. The Bank I mean, of England have knows? said that they will look through um, the effect of the falling pound, like they said they'd look through the effect of the falling oil price on inflation. So it just depends how much they look through, basically. Well, the oil price is rising again now. Oh, exactly. 53 this week. They can look through it on the way up as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as, as can Unilever. <laughs> look through commodity prices on the way down, but but they're very very uh, very interested in them on the way up. Uh, anyway, I mean, let's since we've we've been talking very briefly there about the the low rate environment, let's talk how you about your cover feature, which is about yes, income. Yeah. yeah. Uh, lots of interest in how you generate income in a low rate environment. Equities uh, are increasingly seen as the answer, um, but of course, as we know. Picking a good income-bearing share is, is is not just a question of seeing seeing a large number and buying it. No, no, un- unfortunately not. We wish it was that easy. So yeah, no, what, what I've done. Um, this is actually the third in the um, in a, a series of what I've called investment essentials features, which I've been writing. Why go and speak to um, some top investors in their field and find out what kind of ratios and metrics they look at to help them identify interesting stocks and actually make the buying decision. 
So um, when it's it's all about income uh, in, for this in this feature, and um, there there's some really interesting um things which have been highlighted. Gervais Williams, who's one of the um, fund managers I talked to, who's principally focused on small caps. Um, and also is really um, evangelical about small cap as being a place to find dividends and dividend growth. He's kind of given a whole load of recovery metrics because he thinks really when you're when you're buying yield, often with small caps, you're looking at recovery stocks. So things like price, price to sales, but then more interesting, looking at a ways margins recover in businesses. He's looked at some very esoteric things like the service levels company off, companies offer. Which Hard he, to measure. Very hard to measure, but he thinks hugely important. And I mean, also, I was asking him, you know, did he think the way companies are rated on the internet and um, uh, things like that would provide a quantitative measure? He was a bit sceptical, but I mean, there are there are ways you can go about what, you mean trying like to trust pilots type stuff. And, yes, uh, and FIFU and yeah, um, all these kind yeah, of stars, which I'm always looking at online. I I I pay attention to them increasingly, actually. But so 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 he had that, and also looking at just individual investment projects. So rather than looking at broader measures, which um, one of the other managers I spoke to, um, Hugh Yarrow, who's a bit of a, who's a real rising star of the equity income. And he's from Evanload Income. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he he was. Um, he, I mean, he, he's 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 talked about two measures he uses for return on capital, which is a very broad measure of the entire capital base. Gervais Williams says, especially with small caps. These individual product projects can tell you a lot about whether a company's profits are going to recover if they're if they're good and if they're going to get cash payback very quickly. What do you, what do you mean by an individual project? So he he highlighted um, uh, IG Design, which is um, formerly International Greetings, and he was talking about the investment they made. Which I mean, this is one of our tips as well. Um, Julia Bradshaw, when she was still writing for us, she she got very keen on. The company when they were making this investment into, uh, I think it was into the sales force, about ten million quid going in, and it really transformed profitability. I mean, you know, the the margin was incredibly thin, and it's not a massive margin now, but just the, the you know small increase which they managed, managed to boost profitability hugely, and um, the shares have just gone wild um, on the back of it. It can lead to if you can spot something which is happening at a at, at a business. And, um, so what, like investment in a new factory or... Exactly, you know, yes. And the, yeah. Or a distribution centre, something that could be transformational in terms of reach or scale. Exactly, or, and, 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 if, and if the manager are able to point to it and, say, and really give good firm reasons why um, that project makes sense and when they're going to get the money back that they've invested... And what kind of returns going to ha- um, going to be created beyond that? Funnily enough, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that because one of the tips this week, Headlam, yes. something similar going on there, isn't it? There's a big capex project. They're just ending, yeah. They're, they're ending a round of um, of capex. Well, I mean, it's what's really interesting about Headlam is that they they had to take a break from their um, from a lot of investment um, because they they were delayed with planning for a factory which they're going to build next year now. Just cash flooded in, and they they ended up just paying out. Even though they've got this big sp- bit of spending ahead of them, they they paid out a special dividend just because they had so much cash coming in. We had a similar so, thing with Brooks McDonald. Do you remember they were doing? And um, when we first tipped them, they were doing big investments in their IT infrastructure. Yeah, it wasn't particularly you know g- groundbreaking, <clears throat> but it was suppressing uh, the amount of cash coming was, out of the business. Yeah. But then once point. the project exactly finishes, finishes yeah. suddenly you know there there you have the benefit, and and I mean also you have you have the double benefit. Because if it's a project which is going to 
boost performance of the business and lift margin. But also release those cash up. flows that but have got yeah, into it. The cash isn't going in anymore. You've done your spending. So your cash conversion is completely transformed and people see the balance sheet improving. They see dividends coming out and it can be a real, you know, to use, you know, an overused word, catalyst for, for the um, shares to, you know, run away. And his, I mean, his fund has done extremely well. Uh, diverse income. I mean, yes. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. it's not been going too long, but... Um, no, he's, 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 he, he changed jobs um, not, not that, that long ago. Um, and he's, and he, but he's, yeah, he's a very established small cap figure. And um, yeah, that, that fund's done brilliantly. Yeah, I mean, some of the other uh, guys you interviewed, uh, they're more traditional in terms of the sort of size mm-hmm. uh, of companies they're looking at and, and, and sort of dividend-paying attributes yeah. of those companies. I mean, one of the interesting things with uh, Hugh Yarrow was that, it, or in his approach, is that he looks at cash flow. He doesn't really look at the yield so much. He kind of, he, he does, he does he, you know, he checks that there's a dividend there and it's... Um, and it looks decent, but he's really what he's looking at to drive that is free cash flow. And when he looks at valuation, he's looking at free cash flow yield, and he just completely, you know, believes that's the thing that should the um, investors need to focus on if they're picking dividend stocks. So essentially, you're ignoring those headline sales profit numbers that you'd see in the income statement yeah. and, and actually digging a lot deeper. And we've talked about yeah. this. We've, yeah. we've and, written about this a lot. Yes, you know, no, and uh, I mean, it's, it's a really important way, thing to look at. And I, I mean, also, he makes the point that when you're looking at these numbers, they're lumpy by nature. You can't get that really nice, smooth story that's told with adjusted earnings per share. You know, mm. that, that that is a number which um, companies create to try and tell the story of the company. But um, the rural numbers... You can see the story, but you have to look over a long period of time. So he looks at 10 to 15 year trends in order to get a picture of, um, of what's going on at a company. And this fund has done extremely well as well. Yep, yeah. And I, you know, we, we, we're um, getting, getting all the, you know, the top, the top, top people. These are top, top 100 people. funds, aren't yeah. they, really? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Job Curtis, who's been in, an income investor um, for absolutely ages. You know, he's, he's a real veteran in the field and he, he's also given a number of his um of, of, of his kind of you know top metrics that he looks at and especially it's his kind of his comments on dividend yield i really like because um he's very keen to kind of get a goldilocks yield so um high but not too high and it's just, it's just you know something that simple and often the simple things work the best like if you're looking for a high yield sure look for a yield which is above average or you know somewhere above average but don't look for one which is really big because all, all that should tell you is that people don't believe that dividend's going to be paid or um, they don't think it's going to grow or, or it's going to be cut you know etc yeah and he talks about dividend cover as a way of kind of assessing yeah the likelihood that a dividend will, will continue to be paid yeah absolutely yeah and then for and um yeah and he looks at cash flow and um and earnings simple rules okay. simple Sim- rules <laughs> Yeah, simple. Those simple rules, yeah, work a lot more, a lot more effectively a lot of the time than um, kind of really complicated models. And there's lots of um, evidence behind that. Also, he's, great. He's, he seems to be holding on to Shell, though. Yes. Yeah. No. No. He has. Yeah. He's. Um. Yeah. I mean, he. he we haven't. It, it, the piece doesn't go into their, their views on actual individual stocks, but he's. Um. He's talked about that. Um. Quite widely that he's. Like, yeah. He's. He's sticking with Shell. I'm sticking with Shell. Why wouldn't you? 
Well, the oil price is going the right way now. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it's always, you know, that dividend is sacrosanct. It's not yeah, going they're, anywhere. They're, yeah, and, they're going to do everything they can to. And, and as long as the oil price, you know, can stay at red, relatively sensible levels, you know, I think you've, uh, you've got a decent, decent income share there. Um, okay. Thank you, Algie. Brilliant. Thank There's you. a lot more in the feature, obviously, that uh, we don't have time to discuss now, having spent half the podcast talking about Marmite. <laughs> Any interesting results this week that we haven't uh, touched on? Uh, well, Ted Baker. Ted actually. Baker. Let's talk Ted. Ted Baker's doing well. I mean, I mean that share price is looking a bit ugly, the, the graph there. I mean, it's not had a, a wonderful year, but it's a wonderful company. Is this a buying opportunity? Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I think... The <laughs> yeah, <thro> no. <laughs> <laughs> the shares went up on the the numbers, so obviously some people clearly thought they did. Um, we had a little bit of a discussion about the valuation on this one because um, it was around 23 times expected earnings, which um, is about as expensive as it's been on average for the past three years. If you look over a longer time period, you could say um, it's a bit more expensive. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, some people say you should look at the longest cycles possible for the PE, just so you can kind of ride out some changes, um, cyclical stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, the margin growth is, is done really well. It's a well diversified business in terms of how it's spread across retail, wholesale, licensing. It's managing to grow its um, comparable revenue. Or they, well, the revenue figure they give is sales per square foot, um, which continues to rise even though a lot of its competitors are struggling. So it definitely has a good understanding of its um, audience. So, yeah, it's a, it's a quality stock, but it definitely comes at a price at the moment. Yeah, I don't think that looks terribly punchy for, for Ted Baker, I have to say. But, no, yeah, um, it depends how long a, how long a view you can, you can take on it. Yeah, so, you know, that's, I mean, that's, uh, it's not a huge uh, yield, 1.9%. It's not also not, uh, not a bad one. You are getting a bit of income out of that, that as well. So. And it's a high, high like margin this. business. Yeah, I like this company. I always like this company. I think it's, uh, I think it's offer, uh, it knows its customer, it knows how to respond to trends. Um, it, it's a good one, but uh, I guess we're waiting for the price to come back a bit. Yeah, and apart from that, uh, yeah, you we wait a long time though with Ted Baker. <laughs> I'm a patient man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those, isn't it? Um, DFS, we talked about the currency hit there. YouGov, you liked. That's a, now that is a that is a beautiful share price. Yeah, YouGov has just really happened upon this massive um, hunt for data from companies, from governments, from everyone um, to try and spot trends. Uh, they've got a few products that are catering really well um, towards uh, to global um, organisations trying to understand their brands, the impact of their brands, um, the, what people want out of products. Um, they've also obviously got quite a good public profile because of the polling things that they do. Um, so, yeah, it's just a, they've shown really look at the uh, pre-tax profit growth and the turnover growth. Um, it's been really consistent. So, but, yeah. it, but again, if you were buying the shares, you'd have to pay uh, a significant price for that Yeah, in, exactly. in, in valuation terms. Exactly right, yeah. It's trading at 21 times forecast earnings. There you go, there you go. Yeah, growth doesn't come cheap, eh, Alge? Not quality growth, anyway. Not quality growth. Or not what the market perceives to be Not what the growth. market perceives as <laughs> quality that's growth. Oh, we'll keep going. We end on a philosophical <laughs> note. So anyway, thank you, Ian, uh, and thank you, Algie, uh, for you. putting up with my ramblings about Marmite and uh, other forms of yeast extract. Uh, we didn't even touch on the peanut butter. I know you absolutely rinse Holland and Barrett when the Meridian peanut butter I do. comes on special I do. offer. My, my son will go through about a kilogram per month, I'd say. What's which the, is, why which is they it sell it in butter? kilogram buckets. No palm oil. Buckets. No palm oil, and it tastes better. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, how do you bring a suitcase into work so you can <laughs> literally go and clean out the local Holland Barrett of these big tubs of peanut butter? Cultured lightly, I see, with Simon Thompson's croissant last week. Absolutely. I don't think we are representative of the shopping habits of the uh, wider United <laughs> Kingdom. But there you go. Um, anyway, lots more in the magazine. Uh, we've got uh, an update on uh, outsources from Emma Powell in the sector focus. Uh, and actually, as it happens, we've also got uh, a piece looking in depth at the financials of the outsources from Phil Oakley from Sharepad. And also a tip in the tip section. I won't say what what, um, what company, but it's one that um, I think Phil and Emma agree on. Yeah, by sheer good luck, it all came together. By <laughs> sheer quality of analysis. Quality of analysis. We're kind of we're going in the right direction. We all, we all know what each other's thinking without even talking about it. Um, so yeah, we've got that. Lots in the, uh, the comment section at Sterling this week and uh, and both Chris and uh, Kate Beely are talking about bonds and, and what's happening there with government bonds. Um, personal finance, obviously, they and funds, they will talk about their section in detail on their podcast tomorrow. Another busy week and uh, lots more busy weeks till Christmas. Thank you all for listening. Pick up the magazine, Income, Tricks of the Trade, £4.70 in all good news agents, or get online and subscribe. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.